Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor in London. It's Monday, the 25th of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, our guest is Lesia Vasilenko, a Ukrainian member of parliament for the pro-European Holos Party and a human rights lawyer. She joins me from Kyiv to discuss the latest in the war in Ukraine, Putin's hybrid tactics, and what the country needs in order to counter Russia's advances in the East and South. Lesia Vasilenko, thank you so much for joining us today. We're now around 150 days into Russia's war in Ukraine, and you've been in the country throughout that time. What has been the or what is the day-to-day like in the country at the moment? It's a pleasure to be with you, first of all. And second, the, the, uh, answering your question, I haven't been in the country all of the time because I was constantly going in and out on various diplomatic missions. And I had the opportunity like this to see how the country was changing. From that very moment of the 24th of February until today, a lot of time has passed. It seems like the Ukrainian population has grown up by decades, by centuries. But at the same time, we have learned to live with war in our lives. That's as simple as that. I was just discussing this over over coffee in my last meeting, that we were watching these movies about World War II just a while back and thinking, oh, how could people party when there were bombs going off in the background and the women would wear red lipstick and put the heels on and go out dancing and just live their day-to-day life. It seemed that absolutely impossible. And now we are those women putting on the red lipstick and living the best of our life that we can live with the noises of war in the background. What, on your travels abroad and outside of the country, what kind of, what did you pick up on as the perception of the war from outside, outside Ukraine? I think in the beginning, everybody was in utter shock and we received huge amounts of support and we had officials in some meetings just starting crying with us in complete disbelief. 
that this was going on just like that in the middle of Europe, that this was allowed to happen in the middle of Europe in the 21st century. And right now, I think that people also got used to living with the war, but also people are getting used to actually blurring out the war from their everyday lives. And that's the biggest change that's happening outside of Ukraine. Do you think the attitude from outside Ukraine, people have become, as you said, used to it, accustomed to it? Do you think there's a bit of fatigue even? It's our brain, right? Like the human brain, this is how it functions. We adapt to various situations, no matter how difficult they are, no matter how awful they are. Our brains get used to the sensation, get used to the bad news and just takes them as normal. And I think this is what was happening here in Ukraine. We had to learn to live with the war. We don't really have another choice. We continue fighting and we continue living our day-to-day life. When you are not in Ukraine, when you are not in this danger zone, it's only normal also to, after the initial shock, to adapt and to go back living your everyday life. But I think that what 2014, 2015 should have taught Europe and the world is that you cannot ignore war. You cannot grow tired of it. You cannot grow fatigued of it. Although our brain is going to try to play that game with us. So knowing that, having that lesson from 2014, 2015, I think it is key to take this situation with a full awareness and understand that, okay, my brain is going to try to phase it all out, to block it all out, to concentrate on the day-to-day, on the problems right here, right now. But I still want to remember what is going on in Ukraine because essentially it's still a threat. Essentially it's a risk which, if not stopped at Ukraine's borders, can actually go beyond Ukraine's borders. I think this is something that people in the West really need to acknowledge and really need to approach with full awareness. I I want to come back to that, but first I wanted to ask you about how difficult has it been to continue keeping the ordinary function of the state and of government going throughout all of this, keeping public services running and the running of parliament and things like that. It's been a roller coaster with everything. We've touched a bit on the emotional side. It's been a roller coaster there for every single Ukrainian and it still is. And it's been a roller coaster on the governmental side and on the running of the country. This is not something that is described in any kind of law or in any kind of bylaws or directives or whatever. Don't get me wrong, we in Ukraine, like many other countries, have the law on the martial law. We have the the different kinds of regulations that that govern different situations and how government bodies are supposed to operate. But trust me, when it happens, all these laws will literally be just words and just contingency plans just lying there somewhere. Because when the war happens, it just brings chaos with it. And you have to learn to rise about that chaos. Today, Ukraine is actually rewriting a lot of its laws that were governing, the again, the martial law and the way that the parliament, government and other institutions need to be functioning at the time of war because we're taking it from practice. We are retransmitting what is happening right here on the ground into the paperwork, into the documents that are fixing the rules for government, but also for society to function. 
And I think that we're doing a pretty good job with that. Parliament has been meeting regularly every, well, first it was once a month, so then it was every two weeks. Now it's almost every week that we're meeting. Yes, we don't sit for the whole week. We sit for maybe one sitting once a week or two days every two weeks. But we've become more efficient. We do all the discussion online. Thanks, COVID, for that, for putting the system in place in terms of how our committees and how our government bodies are able to function on long distance. And with the technology, it's been made possible. But at the same time, we are coping. Government has been working all of this time. They never left. They were, almost all of them were always located in Kiev. Our president, of course, He's been in Kiev all throughout with his uh, several visits to the front lines to where the action is really happening. And yeah, so we've been managing to, to keep it all together. The country has, the economy has not gone into a default. The, all the local authorities are also intact, apart from where uh, the territories have been occupied by Russian military forces. But I think that all in all, we're doing pretty good. What sort of changes have you made to the laws based on the lessons you've learned about the actual practical implications of living through the war? The basic stuff that has been changed around immediately were actually the regulations that govern how how parliament can operate in different situations if something happens to the building of the parliament, if something happens to, to Kiev. If something happens to the critical number of members of parliament. So all of these documents had to be adopted with the different scenarios in mind and adapted to to how the war is being conducted now in the 21st century and especially a war with Russia. So this was probably like the critical point, which was very quickly amended. We've passed a whole bunch of laws on the help of the and the assistance to the population, to the internally displaced persons to the Ukrainians who are fleeing abroad, what they can rely on. A whole bunch of laws have been passed on education for kids because what Ukrainians value the most is is education for the children, the future of the children. So regardless of that, we're trying to find ways of how our kids can go back to school on the 1st of September, maybe even have offline schools. We are actually passing constantly. There's amendments to laws as to how the army can run, what they can and cannot do to make sure that they can do their job most efficiently and with the least with the least issues and problems being posed to them by any kind of authorities. And what do you... What do you make of President Zelensky's leadership throughout the conflict? Well, as you know, I'm from the opposition party and we've been rather vocal before the war on the criticism, constructive criticism, I would say, of how mono-majority or the majority party in our parliament has been running things as the presidential party. But in all honesty, in these almost five months of war now, we are not separating ourselves out anymore into opposition or majority. We're standing the united front. And of course, I'm backing the president. I think that Ukraine is extremely lucky at this point in time to have President Zelensky, who's leading the country, who's leading the army. We haven't fallen. We are still standing. The general course, as things stand today, is to regain control of all the occupied territories. By all the occupied territories, I mean also Crimea and the territories of Donetsk and Lugansk region, which were occupied since 2014-2015. And I think that's a great plan and I'm willing to back it and willing to do everything that depends on me 
that's in my capacity to make sure that plan works. Well, you will have seen the White House's warning that Russia is planning to annex certain parts of, or large parts of Ukraine in the east and the south, much in the same way it did with Crimea, not just the Donye and Luhansk, but also the cities of Kryzhan and Zaporizhia. What does Ukraine need to stop that from happening? Weapons. It's a very simple answer to a very simple question. Apart from that, the warning should have been that Russia is preparing to annex all of Ukraine. Because Russia is not going to stop at Kherson and Zaporizhia like it didn't stop at Crimea and like it didn't stop at certain areas of the Donetsk and Lugansk region. If it is not pushed back beyond Ukraine borders, back into Russia, that Russian army is going to be marching every time a little bit further, every time taking control of a little bit more territories of Ukraine. And by the end of this century, Ukraine will be no more. It will be wiped off as a country and the Ukrainians will be destroyed as a nation. We in Ukraine, we have no doubt about that. We have no illusion. We are absolutely certain that right now we are fighting for our very existence and we are fighting for the principles and values of the free world that we have learned to love and cherish all of us as freedom-loving nations. This free world, which has been forged from out of the fires of Nazism and all the uh, troubles uh, since World War II. And now, again, our free world is in danger of falling if Russia is allowed to prevail and allowed to rebuild its empire. This is what we Ukrainians are fighting for, but we need the tools to do it. And we need the political support the backing from our international partners in the US and Britain, across Europe, across the African states, across Asia, across the whole world. We need everyone to be standing with us and to be saying that, yes, it's okay to be independent. And yes, it's okay to fight for democracy and freedom. I think one of the things that has been really impressive viewing Ukraine from the outside is just the political cohesion that seems to be taking place within the government and parliament. Although I think it struck a lot of people as really surprising when Zelensky recently fired his head of security and intelligence services and the prosecutor general over claims that their respective agencies had been infiltrated by officials who were compromised by cooperating with Russians. Is that a widespread worry among Ukrainians' institutes and bodies and agencies that there will be officials who are sympathetic to Russia or coordinating with the Russians? Russia is working every day against Ukraine on many different dimensions. The, war, the wars of the 21st century, they are different from those back in the day, even like Second World War, and most certainly different from the wars that were fought before that. Today, we're talking about hybrid wars. They are fought in cyber space. They are fought in, in the media. They are fought over people's brains and hearts with all kinds of different psychological methods and propaganda. And of course, all of these elements, they also impact the officials that can be working for Ukraine, that can be working for other countries, in fact, as well. And these officials suddenly become Russia's minions working from the inside to destabilize and to break the democratic system and to weaken it and make it susceptible to Russia's influences and Russia's attacks. And we are aware that Russia is doing that. 
And I believe that it was the president's call. It was his team's call to, to make these re replacements as he understood that the situation went beyond the control. And perhaps it's not even, I'm more than certain that there was no issue with the personalities involved, with the prosecutor general and with, with the head of the security service. But it could be that they have lost influence over their people. And it could be that they have lost control of the situation itself. And that is why they needed replacement. Unfortunately, I cannot say any more than that and in any other words, as it's also a matter of internal security for Ukraine. That does, speaking of Russian tactics, that does lead me to another question. You've been very vocal on social media and in Western media about decrying and pointing out and highlighting the attacks on civilians that the Russians are perpetuating. We've seen missile attacks on shopping centers, on maternity hospitals, on schools, and hundreds of just tragic cases of civilians being killed, particularly women and children. Social media is full of horrible images. You yourself have children and I believe you've sent them abroad since the start of the conflict. What was that decision like? That was the most difficult decision I think that I had ever had to make. And I don't think that I was realizing also the extent of other difficult decisions that that would draw in with it. Because now my children are abroad and they will probably be staying there for the next school year as I don't see this fighting ending any time before September, and probably most not ending by, the, by March even. And that makes it quite complicated because right now there are no flights out of Kiev to anywhere. The whole airspace is closed. So if you want to get from Kiev abroad, you need to take a not very leisurely drive all across to Poland to Rzeszow or to Warsaw, which are the nearest airports for me. And that drive will take you around 12 hours with a rather complicated border crossing. And then only you start taking the flight and going through the normal airport ordeal. So for me, really to see my family right now, it's a luxury. And the reason I went into detail describing that is because a lot of Ukrainian parents are in, in the same kind of situation. If they haven't taken their kids abroad themselves, they are like me just doing these incredible journeys just to have a couple of days with their children. But again, we're doing this, I'm doing this for the safety of, of my children and to make sure that they have a normal future, that they have as less trauma and stress linked to the war as possible because they are already under the stress. They hear talks of the war all the time. When they hear glimpses of the news, they know the places. They've been to the places that have been under attack. They have been to Vinnytsia, which just suffered the, the missile attack just last week. They have gone on to summer camp holidays in Mykolaiv and Kherson with the summer camp bases where they would spend time with their kids under Russian army occupation. Every single Ukrainian today is, is affected by this war in one way or the other. And we will have a lot of consequences. We already have a lot of consequences to deal with. And we will have actually even more as this progresses. So it's in our interests to, to finish it as quickly as possible. But it's also in the interests of all our neighbors to have this war end as quickly as possible. Because the longer it lasts, the longer term consequences will we all have to suffer. 
wherever you are in the world. If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman, in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I know this is probably a question for once the war ends, but what efforts are being made by the Ukrainian government and officials to ensure that things like attacks on civilians are being documented so that Russia can be held accountable? We are documenting every single crime. We have national teams and also international teams working on site in all the areas which are not under Russian occupation laws, that is. Witnesses are being identified, victims are being identified, taking a careful approach based on international principles and procedures to make sure that the crimes are accounted for 
are proper, properly documented and then that they can be passed on and used as evidence in the International Criminal Court case. We've seen war crimes and atrocities and other conflicts go unpunished. <laughs> What's needed to ensure that the same doesn't happen in Ukraine? That there is accountability. The, all the guilty parties need to be brought to justice, to the courts, and justice must be served. And every single crime against humanity must be, be gone through in complete detail in the court proceedings, crime by crime. And every single soldier, officer, general of the Russian army, decision maker from Moscow must be brought to responsibility and must be served with a sentence. But then the question is, how do we do that? Because to answer that, again, we need an international unity in political will and understanding that the aggression in Europe and the aggression from Russia does not stop at Russian soldiers leaving Ukrainian land. Because if that's as far as the U.S. and other countries supporting Ukraine are willing to go, they must be prepared then uh, that in 10, I don't know, 7, maybe 20 years, Russia will regroup, reinforce its military forces and come at it again with the attack. And all the while, the Russian nation will be continued to be fed this hatred of Ukrainians and of all of the democratic world. So really, along with pushing Russia out from Ukraine, there must be a very clear attitude towards the fact that Russia needs to be reformed as well. There needs to be a complete demilitarization of that country. That country needs to be neutralized in terms of nuclear weapons. And that country must be decomposed into probably several states to make sure that it can never rise again as a military aggressive power. And only then can we say that Europe can be a safe space, that Europe can be a free space and a democratic space. And what would you say to those who would argue that those kind of measures would be an example of the West overstepping and would put the world at risk of nuclear war or a much escalated conflict than perhaps, well, than anyone would want to see. I feel there's two parts to the question. So first of all, about the overstepping, we are, we would not be overstepping. We would actually be finally complying with Article 51 and 53 of the UN Charter, whereby where there's an aggressive war, an aggressive attack by one nation on another nation, there's a duty of collective security. And that would actually be acting in the name of collective security making sure that this attack is stopped, but also that this attack is never started. Again, pushing back on Russia and making sure that the guilty parties are accountable for their actions will only mean that we are still living by the rules of international responsibility of states, which were also adopted by the majority of countries as an international act. 
And to do that, there needs to be certain actions. There were certain actions at after Second World War, after Germany was completely destroyed. Um, and I'm not saying that the livelihood of Russians as is should be completely devastated and they, that Russia should become unlivable. No, that's not what happened to Germany. This is a whole different topic. We can talk about the German Marshall Plan and how it all worked out. And it actually worked out for the best for everyone, both for Germany and for its neighbors and for countries across the Atlantic. So something like that needs to be already discussed. And that discussion needs to be taken beyond Ukraine and into Russia as well. As to the second part of the question, Russia hasn't used nuclear war, not during the Cold War, and it's not going to use it now despite all of the threats. Because pressing that button, it's not just a decision of one person, Vladimir Putin. No matter how crazy he is, there's a whole chain of command and a whole range of actions that need to be done for the nukes to be launched. Second is going to, if they hit Ukraine with it, it's going to be too too close to home. Their people are going to suffer and their people in Russia, because of the Soviet and Russian propaganda, are as scared of nuclear war as anyone else in the world. So essentially that would cause panic and destabilization inside of Russia itself. They will not let that happen because that will mean losing control over their country as well. Attacking any other NATO member state, that's a no-go because the power, the combined power of all NATO member states is much, much greater than the Russian army and they know that they would get destroyed as well. It's just blackmail and ultimatums and I think that we have enough evidence Today, saying that Russia is going to be using that blackmail as a tool and as an instrument of getting what they want, but that also the only way to win over Russia is to exert a force greater than Russia over it. You've mentioned several times the importance of sustained Western support and Western unity. I know that Boris Johnson has a lot of fans in Ukraine. We are in the midst of a leadership contest to replace him as prime minister. What would you and other Ukrainians be hoping for in the next prime minister? I very much hope that the UK will stay united around the topic of Ukraine and around the need to fight off aggression and bring democracy back to the European region. And that being said, I have no doubt that any member of the Conservative Party actually thinks otherwise. And it would be great to, for the next prime minister, whoever it is, to use the dedication that Boris Johnson showed to Ukraine as a sort of baseline for doing even more and for pushing even harder. Because it's not just about the support coming from within the UK with the national resources that the UK can can spend on Ukraine and on the collective security of Europe. But it's also about the leadership role that the UK can and should undertake internationally to push other leaders of the free world, to inspire other leaders of the free world to do more for Ukraine. The UK has all the capacity to do that. I think that the willpower is there. It's about having the right person in the prime minister's seat who will be willing to play the, not just on the international, on the national level, but also will be willing to take 
the leadership on the international arena as well. I think that's all I have time for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a review. It makes a difference. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.